Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. So welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. Rob Burgess is the founder and editor of a website called Head for Points. And Head for Points is actually the UK's biggest frequent flyer and business travel website with 1.5 million monthly page views. So Rob Burgess, you founded this business in 2011. I know it's hugely influential. You're probably one of the most vocal commentators I know in the world of loyalty in the UK. So first and foremost, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Thanks, Paula. Great stuff. And there's a number of accolades, I suppose, that caught my attention, Rob, when I was reading your profile. I know, for example, you've won Editor of the Year um, at the Business Travel Journalism Awards. Um, So you sit in a very interesting space. We were talking together before we came on air. I think you started, um, I suppose, what really might have been originally a passion project. And you really have grown into um, a force to be reckoned with in terms of the overall airline and hotel travel loyalty business. So first and foremost, before we get into the whole history, tell us your favorite loyalty statistic. I'm always slightly fixated on the fact that there are 5 million people in the UK who have a British Airways Avios account. That 5 million number kind of sits over me because in theory, if you've got an Avios account, you will get some value from reading my website and what I write. And we have about... 50,000 hardcore readers, I would say, who read the majority of the articles we put out. Obviously, our reach is a lot bigger than that, but it's all 50,000 who who follow most of it. And obviously, there's a massive gap between those 50,000 and the 5 million UK IVLS account holders. And in the back of my mind all the time, it's the idea of how far can we go? How, how can we create a product which reaches more of those 5 million than we're currently reaching? Whilst understanding that actually for most people, they actually don't don't have that great interest in the scheme and really don't want to read anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I have many, many loyalty cards. I wouldn't actually want to read a website that dealt with Costa Coffee or Starbucks <laughs> or whatever. But clearly, there's a big gap between 50,000 and 5 million. And you've got to think about how you can fill that space yeah. while still writing stuff that's quite focused and quite in-depth and yeah. quite relevant to what's going on in the market. Yeah. Well, you really have built an extraordinary business, Rob. And I suppose because I'm now in the world of podcasting and, dare I say, a thought leadership, it is incredibly impressive to see somebody, you know, coming from a place of, you know, just earning and burning loyalty points. I think you told me that you have over six million across various programs yourself, including, I think, one million Avios um, and I think one million uh, Virgin points. Um, And to go from that place, um, I suppose, with a very financial background um, in terms of your career to date, to transferring that into being able to advise frequent flyers on how to get the best value. Was that the insight you were trying to get to when you built Head for Points? Fundamentally, I've been traveling a lot in my banking career. Um, I've been in banking for 20 years, um, left in 2011. out of a financial crisis when basically what I used to do disappeared. Mm. I spent 20 years doing a job which involved 
lots of financial analysis, lots of tearing apart company accounts and spreadsheets, trying to pull out simple ideas and key points from very complex sets of numbers. Mm. That's the, people who do that sort of job and have that sort of mindset to do that sort of job tend to gravitate towards frequent flyer schemes and loyalty because they yeah. like the idea of <laughs> trying to be yeah. the system, trying to find the best redemptions in a particular program, the best flights from where to where, yeah. uh, how to get the best value for the points when they're redeeming, um, how to earn as cheaply as possible. So it, it was a fairly... I, I, I joined Fly Talk back in 2004 as an example. That was seven years before I left banking. So there'd been an increase in crossover. And fundamentally, the frequent flyer scene had become my main hobby by that point, I think. I didn't intend to turn it into a serious job. Um, I was very lucky when I left my banking job. Um, I'd been very well paid for a number of years. Um, we weren't sitting on a big mortgage. There was no pressure to get another big job. We just had a second child. So I was quite looking forward to spending more time at home, taking the kids to school and the like. I started, so head points, I thought would be a bit of a fun project. Um, my, you know, I thought, yeah, if it just makes you know, enough money to, you know, pay some of the bills, then, you know, I'm happy. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a change after 20 years of, of sitting in a bank, banking building. And then, yeah, there was nothing else at the time in the UK market. And, it just went very, very well. I mean, not massively quickly. I mean, it's taken us, you know, seven, eight years to get to one and a half million monthly page views. But, you know, I'm now back in an office, unfortunately, <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got free staff, for better or worse. Okay. And I'm doing a job which takes me probably more hours per week than my old banking job used to take up, for better wow. or worse. Wow. Wow. But it's, you know, it's good fun. I, I'm... I'm sort of in control. I mean, as you know, these things, when you've got a publishing schedule, the schedule is always the boss, actually. Yeah. I'm not. But, you know, I'm my own job. I'm my own boss. I I get to fly around the world trying out new business and first-class products. I stay in nice hotels. Mm. I make a decent amount of money. I get to meet some interesting people. Yeah. Travel people are nicer than banking people in general. (laughs) You know, people do travel because because they love it. and because yeah. they just get on with the people and they like the um, environment. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a far nicer world to inhabit than, you know, banking and financial lawyers and management consultants yeah. and, and my old life. So <laughs> it's, um, it was never meant to go like this, I think. Um, I would happily have bobbled away yeah. just, you know, doing it myself around taking the kids to school and stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, if you're doing online stuff and it takes off, it's very hard to control where it ends up. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm going to go home and repeat exactly what you've said, Rob, because clearly I'm from a travel background, uh, but my mm. fiance is from a banking background, so I'm going to tell him <laughs> that you, <laughs> you've said uh, we're nicer people, so that's super nice. Definitely nice people. Yeah. But what I love about what you do, Rob, and I think it's personally inspiring, and I do think a lot of people even listening, you know, are in corporate jobs, you know, like what you've come from in terms of your banking career, but to have built something of your own, Rob, and created um, and really obviously tapped into a niche, because the reason I know of your work, for example, um, to go back to our original conversation, was because I was working in the UK uh, frequent flyer market. 
And I know that a number of the the um, industry people that I used to work with were very nervous about what you would write about any new campaign or any new loyalty initiative that we would have been launching. So I think one of the reasons I wanted you on the show, as you've picked up on, is, you know, how should people who are running loyalty programs um, really connect with thought leaders uh, like you? And you've talked about the fact that you sit, you know, somewhere between, you know, a blogger who's, you know, just kind of writing for fun and, you know, a professional journalist, for example. So you're definitely in that middle space of somebody who is, very opinionated, dare I say it, but extremely well informed. So if I was running, you mentioned, for example, British Airways or Virgin, any of these big airline loyalty programs or travel loyalty programs, how should we be working with thought leaders like you? I think I caveat it at the start by saying that you don't want the tail to wag the dog. Um, People who read my site are probably if you're an airliner or a hotel company, they're your best customers mm. in terms of nights spent and money spent. Yeah. So from that point of view, yes, what they think and what appeals to them is important. But at the end of the day, you're, you're dealing with a relatively small subset of of people. And, you know, obviously, it's slightly with me because, because of my banking background, I'm, I'm very commercial. So I understand the commercial realities of running loyalty programs. Mm-hmm. So you won't see me writing articles saying, why doesn't British Airways open up all of its seats to Australia the week before Christmas for free for redemptions? Yeah. You know, I know yeah. why that doesn't happen. Okay. I, I understand the <laughs> dynamics of it. Okay. So I, I think we try and we, we try and match realism with you know a desire for, for fairness on both sides. Mm. But it is key. It's very obvious in the UK market that some people simply have no interest in talking to people like myself. It, it, I find it slightly odd. There are some people we have great relationships with, you know, Virgin Atlantic, um, fantastic, um, Qatar Airways we do quite a lot with, you know, places where li- literally I know the entire team from the top downwards. Um, and then there are other people, big big household name travel lodge programs in the UK where I have never met the person who runs it. Um, and it's slightly who don't even people who don't even send me advance notice of what they're doing. And that's like bizarre. I mean you, you whether or not people actually like what I write or find it valuable the, the sheer fact that we're doing one and a half million page views a month to some of the UK's most high-value travellers means that you should be keeping us in the loop on what you're doing. Now, whether, whether or not you think you should be going to any trouble to get people like me to write nice things about your program is slightly different, but simply in terms of having an open line of communication, um, you're crazy not to have that. Um, it's it, it simply just purely just to keep us in the loop so we know what's coming up, we know what to write about, we can allocate editorial space to you, we can come to you with questions about promotions or small print, which need clarifying. Not not to have that dialogue is crazy. You know, not not to have someone in your senior team have lunch with me and perhaps with my team once a year is just, as far as I'm concerned, just common sense. Um, we're key, because fun, as you say, fundamentally more there's a large 
group of people in the UK who will take a news of a new program or promotion and will then sit there and think, oh, I wonder what Head Point says about this. Mm. And we'll then go off and have a look at our view of whether something's worth doing or not. Yeah. And then act on the back of it. Wow. Um, That's very powerful, Yeah. It's, it's, not, I, well, it's, it's sheer volume to some extent. It's not... Um, it's, I, I don't like using it as power. Well, we, I, don't, I didn't see it as power. I, I don't mm. try and... You know, yeah. I, I've never in my life gone out and demanded free status of anyone or, you know, free hotel stays or, you know, something in return for writing something nice. But it's just pure professional courtesy. In, in the same way that, you know, people who compete with me in the UK, we're all, we're all friends, we all see each other on a regular basis at events, we're all chatty. You know, people, you, people who you might think are competitors, actually, we all get on very, very well together. And in the same way, I'd like to think that even people who didn't always get an easy ride for the quality of their promotions or offers or program from us would still want to have an open dialogue. And if they were smart, I think they'd want to to do more than that. I mean, if, if you're yeah, if, if you're opening a new luxury hotel in London for your brand, then you know why, why not have us come along, do a stay, have a look at it. You know, our stuff generally ranks first page on Google when we, 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 when we review a property. Um, it gets some buzz out to a group of sort of you know, early adopter types who generally have quite a lot of sway inside their own organizations or with, with, with friends and family who, who want to travel. I think, you know, we're not, we're not selling, you know, good content for, we're not selling space for advertising revenue. We're not demanding money to go on press trips we just, we just want we'd like to be part of a conversation well, we, we are we, we are part of a conversation whether people want it or not and we're, we're, we're not, and so we sort of rambling a bit Paul you know you, know, you know, cut this down a bit later on but um I mean, well, I, yeah sorry, I, I, will, I will add to what you're saying Rob just because for example um I like the way that you framed it as you know it is a professional courtesy because, and you described as well, the idea of having a social media uh, journalism liaison, I suppose a bit like a PR department, um, but to recognize uh, thought leaders in purely digital space um, in a way that perhaps some of the UK players are not. So I definitely think it's professional respect. I think your sheer audience volume uh, commands that level of respect. But also I I do think people, um, particularly as you said, the people who are highly invested in these loyalty programs highly educated on them because they find them fascinating and very rewarding they genuinely do want that independent view and I think it's important that that's what journalists bring to the table is that independent view and there was an article I was looking at your website today Rob um, where you were talking about some um, changes to terms and conditions that British Airways had made and again I just loved the perspective because um, you took what was a fairly um, generically worded I would say change in terms of um, for example if somebody's speaking on social media about the brand and you really clarified I suppose the potential power that the change in that terms and conditions have and I think your headline was you can be thrown out now of uh, the British Airways Executive Club for making the airline look bad and that's absolutely true and I think anybody running loyalty programs now in any sector even though you specifically focus on travel should probably be thinking about that and how their members represent them or, or make their brand look. So maybe just tell us about exactly the, the story that you wrote on that particular uh, side of things. 
Yeah, I think I know where this came from, actually. This is... Um, readers, listeners outside the UK might not know that British Airways has currently been through a protracted dispute with its cabin crew recently over changes to, to terms and conditions in order to try and get the cabin crew cost base down yeah. uh, due to, obviously, coronavirus and people just simply not flying. And the fact that British Airways has historically one of the highest paid cabin crew groups in mm. world aviation. Mm. Obviously, this didn't go down well with a lot of people who were looking at taking having to take pay cuts in order to keep their jobs. And there was a lot of vitriol poured out towards the airline by ex and current cabin crew, um, including one person who had their staff travel privileges taken away. Okay. Um, and, and then BA got some bad press on social media for taking someone's staff travel privileges away. Mm. Actually, when you looked at what this person had posted, um, they were comparing British Airways' leadership team with Nazi war criminals. And oh frankly, you know, yeah, losing your yeah. staff travel privileges for that is probably the least of your worries. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But I think this focused their mind a bit and yeah. on, on what they want to, on, on giving themselves a slightly more power to deal with people who... Yeah. Um, or thought one of a better word trolled a business on social media um the the wording they brought in for executive club members is unfortunately a bit too tight uh Mm -hmm. fundamentally what it says is i mean this is actually what it what it says if you you sort of go through it with a legal mindset Mm -hmm. um if you say anything bad about us even if it's true we can throw you out of the executive club well (laughs) Um, the bit about even if it's true, is I think um, one of my causes a bit more, um, <laughs> okay. a bit more of a problem yeah. most people. Yeah. I, I, I don't think anyone would complain about someone who sp- deliberately spreads misleading information about their experiences with the airline um, being thrown out of what is it? In, in the dates, it is BA's club and BA's rules. But the, the idea that you can simply post things they don't like on social media and be kicked out of the club is tricky i mean i mean to, to, to hand your hands on the table you know we have a comment section on our website and there are some people who we have blocked from commenting on our website because the constant the, uh, their constant contributions are just purely negative towards my team and other other posters and you know my, my view has always been you know my club my rules but you know we're not actually banning them from what well, we can we're not trying to ban them from actually accessing the site was something yeah stopping them causing offense to others so i suppose i've skinned the game on both sides but i i think ba's wording slightly overstepped the mark um on the other hand they haven't actually told anyone this change it's just they it was slotted into the terms and conditions they haven't actually emailed everyone to say you know by the way you know you better keep your mouth shut on facebook now because if you do we're going to come for you and I'm pretty sure they went. It's just, yeah, it, to be fair, if you read the whole terms and conditions of any loyalty program, you, you'll, you'll see there's, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of things in there yeah. they can come for you for. And they never yeah. do, actually. Of course not. Tell me then, uh, Rob, what do you think is changing in the in the loyalty industry? And, you know, the subject of COVID is sometimes interesting. Sometimes we get a bit jaded, I guess, six months in. But um, you do monitor, um, again, as we know, particularly loyalty travel. But I know you're also, for example, you've talked about Tesco um, being a very powerful program in the past. So what do you think are the big changes that are happening for loyalty programs in the UK market? I think in the short term, what people need to be focusing on is, I mean, this is putting it very simply, 
you know, not annoying their members while they can't travel. I mean, this is focusing specifically on the travel sector at the moment. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen people offering often reluctantly stage six extensions or reduced thresholds or letting people roll over bookings or get refunds. And mm. I think at the moment, really, the best you can hope for is that you can manage your base and manage your the expectations of your members so that when things do get back to some sort of level of normality, which, yeah, perhaps yeah. we're looking at, May, June next year, looking at you know, current vaccination yeah. progress and the like, mm. then your members are still there and they still have the same opinion of you as they had back in January 2019. Sure. And for a lot of people who've been struggling with refunds or mm. uh, getting their plans changed or getting their status carried forward, that won't be the case. I, I think a lot of people haven't been fully focusing on that. Um, I mean, for, for most loyalty programs, financially, this has not been a bad time. You know, people aren't traveling, so they're not redeeming miles. Yeah. They're still spending on their co-bank credit cards and the like, so the money's still coming into the program. Yeah. So from a cash point of view, I, I think most programs aren't in a bad position. Mm. But are they necessarily sort of dealing with the current concerns of their members and are they positioning themselves so that they're ace for when things start coming back to normal once you get outside the travel sector i think it's slightly different it's very much i think business as usual um i've not seen much movement from supermarkets in terms of changes what what we have seen i think is some people if you look at, say, Nectar, which is a sort of coalition shopping program in the UK, mm. you know, they've continued to lose partners um, both before and during COVID. Yeah. People are looking at the cost of being in that coalition program and, and deciding that actually it's not worth the money they're spending on it, but it's not delivering them the extra benefits. And when costs are getting tight, they see it's something they can give up. Mm. But on the other hand, you know, if you look at Little, which is a discount supermarket chain in the UK, they, they've just launched a brand new launch program after saying yeah. for years they never would. Yeah. Um, again, they, they think they're missing out on something which is tying people into the brand and trying to keep people loyal. So it's you can see it from both sides. Um, fundamentally, there are a lot of people who are losing their jobs, a lot of people with less money to spend. And... These and companies are turning to their loyalty managers or hiring a loyalty manager to say, Look, you know, it's getting tough out there for our customer base, and we have to do what we can to keep them loyal and keep them coming to us. And for a lot for some people, it's using loyalty as a lever to do that. Uh, for other companies, it's a case of it's always jettisoning their loyalty efforts because they're they're simply not delivering in terms of profitability, and the company isn't, isn't in a position to keep that going. This is travel issues as well. I mean, for every person in the UK who's lost their job due to COVID, there's somebody else who's been working from home on full salary, is saving a huge amount of money by not buying clothes, not buying train tickets every day, not buying expensive lunches every day, and actually has more money in the bank than ever before, and is actually just desperately keen for things to relax and go out there and spend and start doing stuff. 
So I'm delighted you picked up on coalition programmes, Rob, um, and I was looking at uh, some Nectar news recently and I did see that they actually added in uh, Argus particularly as a new retailer. So uh, what did you make of that development? Argus is owned by Sainsbury's now, so that's not entirely surprising. Um, Sainsbury's bought the Nectar programme off Amia a couple of years ago and fundamentally it's always becoming a Sainsbury's supermarkets group program rather than a, a general coalition program. Okay. And, you know, Nectar's lost BP, Homebase, Debenhams, Oxfam, Expedia, yeah. lots of really good people over the last four or five years in the UK. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's a subject of great debate, actually, Rob. And I know you, in fact, also, you do some consulting work into the loyalty industry. Is that uh, something you still do on a regular basis? I, I, I do little bits for people. I'm, I prefer to do it with people who are developing projects for the travel market, which we can get involved in later on. Um, my, my sort of preferred way of doing things is people come to us and say, look, we're going to start working with Avios or Tesco Club Card or whatever. And can you just help us with an earning rate or with a way of structuring this to make it attractive and it will make people want to get, get engaged? Okay. And that works well, well for me, not just because I'll get paid for a bit of work, but because yeah. if, we can, if we can develop a project yeah. which is actually attractive, I can then take that to my readers yeah. and I can hopefully get paid twice by getting commission from <laughs> readers who sign up but yeah. also because it's also you know helping the general ecosystem grow okay. uh, I, i'm not desperately keen on doing bog standard consultancy on things which don't really help the business long term um partly because yeah at the end of the day we're writing 21 articles a week for publication if you a day spent on consultants is a day i can't spend writing other stuff and it's you know, at the end of the day, the site is the key driver behind everything, and you've got to sort of keep keep at yeah. least one and a half eyes on that. Yeah. Whilst also using a little bit of time to try and grow other things around the side. Wonderful. And just one other major development in the UK um, market recently, Rob, I'd, I'd really welcome your opinion on. And again, as I said to you before we came on air, most of our um, listeners are actually probably in the US um, and actually they are all over the world. So, But it is also good. I think the UK is perhaps the most mature loyalty market in the world. Um, and I was really fascinated with the work that Pret-a-Manger has, um, has released, which I'm calling um, actually by association I'm calling extreme loyalty and it's this idea of a subscription model where you pay what I think is actually a very affordable monthly price point of £20 and you get up to five cups of barista crafted coffee every day for up to 30 days so like 150 cups of coffee so I know it's not in your normal kind of space of frequent flyers and and luxury hotels but tell me here's the the thing I used to spend pre-COVID at least £50 a week in Pret-a-Manger. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> because I, I would usually have breakfast in there yeah. after dropping my kids at school and lunch as well most days. So I have a lot of skin in the, skin in the game there. It's very, very aggressive, mm. uh, what they're doing. I mean, Pret charges over £2 for a cup of coffee. So you get yeah. your £20 a month back with 10 cups of coffee. Yeah. Beyond that, you're in profit. Okay. But on the other hand... This has a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the sort of nuances we find in travel programs. Mm. A cup of coffee has fundamentally zero marginal cost. 
yeah. really riskily. Perhaps ten percent yeah. of the selling price: beans, yeah. milk, cup. Yeah, yeah. So even if you do have one hundred and fifty coffees for your twenty pounds, Pret's not making a real loss on that. If you wouldn't have bought them in the first place. They they hope that it's no different to a hotel giving away a free hotel room on the only cost they incur being the cleaning, or an airline giving away a seat it knows it won't sell and the only cost incurred is going to be you know the cost of your food effectively. So it's quite smart in that they're not giving away things that cost them real money like you know third party products they've bought in. They're obviously hoping that people will buy other stuff every time they go in which makes sense. Uh, and more importantly, and yeah, they're very open about this, the company is in serious trouble. Um, it's the dominant, sort of, I call it a sandwich and coffee chain is a bit underplaying it, but it's, it's, it's the dominant sandwich and coffee chain in the UK. There are literally hundreds of these stores in central London. You know, within, there were probably five within three minutes walk of my old office those shops are all now pretty dead because people are working from home. They've never really focused on operating outside big cities because they have a very high cost base of all the food made on the premises. So it simply doesn't make sense to operate in places where we only get a couple hundred customers a day. And now they're in real trouble. And a lot of their shops have seen 70, 80% falls in custom. So for them, this is actually... It's almost a case of, you know, we have nothing to lose anymore. Survival frankly. almost. If yeah. We, yeah. If, if, it, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it works, we can start yeah. grabbing With half a chance. Yeah. Whatever, whatever market is left out there to get. Um, the biggest problem for them almost is that they are so big and their existing share of the kind of sandwich and coffee market is so huge in London mm. that even if they might increase their market share by a little bit through this program, it still won't help them yeah. in terms of what they need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a great, it's a great idea. It's gone down very, very well. They're, they're marketing it really hard. If you go in the stores, okay. um, I, I've been getting advertising popping up on my site for it. So they're clearly, clearly putting money into third-party yeah. advertising spend as well. Great. Um, let Let's see. Um, people will sign up because it's a bit of a no. It's very hard not to drink. 10 coffees a day if you're working in send 10 coffees a month to get your money back. Totally. If you're in central London every day. Yeah. Um, Long term, will it drive incremental spend? Will it? I don't, I don't know. Let, mm. Let's see. But it's ballsy, and you know, it puts yeah. a lot of pressure on Starbucks and Costa and the other big UK coffee chains to do yeah. something very similar. Frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. No, as I said, we've been using the term extreme loyalty because at the end of the day, you know, a loyalty program, yes, it's great when people give you provision to market to them. And it's great if they're, you know, invested in terms of, you know, actually, you know, giving you share of wallet, but actually to commit to giving, you know, a full contribution in financial terms, especially at a time like this, um, for me is just, um, you're right, it is kind of ballsy, but I think it is uh, absolutely essential. And I've mm. written a lot about it in the US, for example, and the amount of companies that are, you know, exploring this idea of subscription for physical products. Um, we're well used to it with Amazon Prime, obviously, and, you know, with um, Netflix and all of those kind of models. But uh, it's very new in the coffee space. So, mm. yeah, I'm delighted to hear it's going down well in the UK. There is, there is one thing I would add. Pret was always one of those companies I've used as an example of people who didn't need the loyalty program. Oh, yeah, but the reason why yeah. Four Seasons Hotels or Mandra Rental or you know Pret 
in the food space didn't have programs. That's because they didn't need one. That their product was so good, you didn't need to have gimmicks. You didn't need to give buy 10 coffees, get one free. People would go there and pay a premium price because the product was so good. And they've gone on, you know, they've started 15 years without any sort of program. I'm not sure. Subscription loyalty, I see slightly different to emotional loyalty. Um, because fundamentally, what Pret's doing is just giving you a massive discount on your coffee if you buy a lot of it. To what extent that breeds loyalty, as in psychological loyalty, loyalty sort of from the heart, as opposed to box under financial loyalty, in terms of if I sign up for this card, I'll save £10 a month for my coffee bill. That, that's what interests me. I, I, I'm not... I know a lot of people like, you know, Collins and the like have been pushing subscription loyalty products to people in this industry over the last 12 to 18 months. But is it loyalty or is it just, I'm not, I'm not sure if subscriptions equal loyalty or not. Mm. I don't know. Mm. It, it, or is it just a financial transaction? Mm. But then perhaps all loyalties, but at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah, all loyalty schemes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're very cynical, a loyalty scheme is a way of getting someone to consume your product where they mm. probably wouldn't have done it anyway. Yeah. You know, you know, getting someone to drive past a cheaper or better or newer hotel mm. to your hotel mm. because they want your points to get a free room for their family in the future on this business trip. Yeah, that's, you know, a holy again, grail. Again, you know it's, it's, it's a holy grail, but it's not, is it loyal, loyalty versus just, you know, Tweet, yeah, you know, trying to get, trying to persuade someone to you know, mm. do something which is not totally in their best interest. It's a difficult one. Travel loyalty has an extra niche to it that other sectors don't, by the way, which we all forget. With, with travel loyalty, the person who takes the reward is usually not the person who's paying the bill. That's true. And this, yeah. this creates a totally different dynamic to mm. other forms of loyalty, where effectively you're rebating the person who's actually paying. Yeah. I mean, in, in my banking days, I would we had an office in Paris, and I would go over there quite a bit. I would often fly uh, business class from London to Paris because mm-hmm. my contract allowed me to fly business class, yeah. rather than take Eurostar. I mean, Eurostar was the obvious thing to do because I would get eighty British Airways mm-hmm. tier points, and if I, you know, I would keep my BA lounge access if I got six hundred tier points a year. Okay. So doing three or four business class flights to Paris rather than <laughs> taking the train, which is more convenient, yeah. was something I did. And okay. yeah, my employer my employer was ambivalent about it because, you know. <laughs> they were happy but, as long as you were happy, Rob. That's what I'm hearing. It, exactly. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't convenient for me and it wasn't the most yeah, sensible thing to do necessarily. Yeah. And trade yeah. would probably have been cheaper as well. But you, you, you make small all decisions with other people's money mm. so that you can benefit yourself at other times. And that makes travel schemes at least for business travellers, work differently to other sorts of reward schemes mm. where effectively you're paying people back money they've already given you. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's a different dynamic because those people might actually prefer to have given you less money in the first place. Mm. 
And just as you mentioned emotional loyalty, Rob, do you have any examples? And I'll finish up with this question, but do you think anybody in the UK is doing a good job on that side in terms of, you know, maybe building their brand? And you made the point earlier, I suppose, that, you know, people's behavior has changed um, unintentionally uh, and certainly not by choice. So so who would you say is doing a good job of building that emotional loyalty in, in the UK? In terms of a program or just in terms of the culture of their business? Well, actually either, because I was going to comment when you said that some brands don't need a loyalty program. Mm. I would often say the same about Apple, for example. I'm an yeah, Apple exactly. user and, you know, for, for, for Apple, for me, it's all about the customer experience and, and the product is exceptional. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't mind whether you want to talk about it from a cultural perspective or a product perspective or a program perspective, because... This program, this show is called Let's Talk Loyalty. And I do feel mm. we have liberty, therefore, to talk about people <laughs> who, you know, just happen to feel like, oh, my God, I love I mean, this product. Yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> obviously, in the UK, um, there's a department store chain called John Lewis, which is owned by its staff um, and has there's about 50, it's a big, big business, about 50 stores across the UK. And that has a very high level of loyalty from what you might tend to call sort of middle class, middle England types, of which I, I, I would include myself. And if you were in the UK, you'd probably include yourself as well. Um, it's, it has a kind of emotional, people have an emotional loyalty towards the John Lewis business. Um, partly because they, they employ a different sort of member of staff to most stores. They don't pay staff commission on what they sell staff get a share of the profits so they're generally more inclined to do things which support the overall business rather than their own little corner or their own little department um they, they do very sort of soft loyalty um if you, if you download their app then they will give you a free cup of coffee and a cake voucher in the phone app every month or so again again this stuff which you know, has marginal cost to them a very very little but gets you in the store and might so you spend something but but that business has grown over the years on the back of excellent customer service. Um, if you have any problems, you take stuff back to them, you know, years after you bought it, they still fix it. They do refund questioning. You know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a model. Uh, you know, some people might just put the same money into a loyalty scheme, but, but they've always spent a lot of money on customer service and staff training and the like. And that's delivered a culture which, I mean, fundamentally, it's now the last department store chain standing in the UK, effectively. Wow. With House Fraser and Debenhams on the verge of bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of programmes, it's, what's, I'll tell you what's interesting. There's a, this is my sort of, my COVID loyalty story. Okay. There's a, a, there's a coffee chain called Joe and the Juice. Yes. Which, I know it. it, it, it it's, it's, it's global, it's Danish actually. It's, got, it's global now. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I'd always ignored it, but there's one near where I live, and I'd never been in there. It's aimed at you know people 30 years younger than me. Um, they sell coffee, but they focus on uh, healthy made made to order juices. Yeah. But it was the only place during the start of the lockdown in the UK, the only place that actually open for coffee, and it was just far enough from my house that it counts as exercise to walk there and back again. So Great. every yeah. day um, I would go down to Germ Juice. Um, and get a couple of cups of coffee and come back. And because you had to order on the app during lockdown to avoid yeah. everyone handing you cash, yeah. um, I would end up in their loyalty program. And it was very, to join a program from scratch, literally from scratch, 
I'm I'm now sort of almost top tier. Um, I have 60,000 points in my loyalty scheme, which is the equivalent of having bought 200 cups of coffee in there since March. (laughs) Well done, you. It's been, I don't know if my heart agrees, but (laughs) it was very interesting to me how how that scheme worked. when you once you signed, well, for a start, just signing up, they give you a free juice, which worth about you know four or five yeah. pounds, which is yeah. a very interesting sign-up bonus. Yeah. Um, then there are quite a few little milestones you get. So there's you get one for buying, you know, three cups of coffee in a week mm-hmm. for a few thousand points. I mean, you get another one for buying five cups of coffee in a week. Yeah. Then you end up with one, which I think was like fourteen cups of coffee in twenty-one days. Mm-hmm. Um, which I realised that if I actually bought one for myself and then bought one for my wife in a separate transaction, ten minutes later, <laughs> would count as two, which is how yeah. I hit that. So yeah. I was, I was then working out ways of sort of playing with this and how you could sort of hack it and effectively to. I mean, yeah. what's interesting is that the rewards are utterly de minimis. I mean, for, for buying the equivalent of two hundred cups of coffee, uh, they've given me. I have credits in my account now for ten free items. Okay. And, and and a sort of nominal guarantee that whenever I order, my order now supersedes anybody else in the queue. <laughs> if you order me up, but you know, but even then, yeah, I got ten for ten for. I have this weird sort of challenge to get towards it. And during the last few weeks, you know, I have this sort of thing in my head that I really should, you know, I was sort of squeezing trips in to try and get to this sixty thousand point threshold. Oh, and even now, even yeah. now, I've been given these ten free items. Yeah, my mind is saying, I go in and order a coffee. I don't use one. Mm. At some point, I, I should sit down and work out the, how can I extract the most value from these 10 free items, which can be oh, anything on Oh, totally. And so, I'd love- yeah, but it's the yeah. way, it, it's the way it, it kind of, sort of plays with your brain. And there's, it's, it's, it, I've got a slightly bizarre level of involvement with the German Juice Loyalty Program since lockdown yeah. in March. <laughs> and from that point of view, it's done an exceptional job yeah. in keeping me loyal, especially because actually their coffee is notably more expensive wow. than a standard coffee shop wow. and once other shops started opening yeah up again i was actually paying a premium to go there and buy a coffee okay compared to buying it you know in one starbucks or pret manger opened up i was actually okay. paying a bit more than i would in those shops to go there so they've even persuaded me to spend more wow just to you know in my sort of totally bizarre quest to hit um yellow status at sixty thousand points <laughs> but I, and obviously I, I, know, yeah. I, I know all the tricks because it's my job but you know i know how it works and what they're trying to do yeah but I, I still found it compelling actually and i i thought whoever set this up wow did a really good job um well actually. yeah well well done I'm, I'm delighted you talked about that one because i literally wrote an article about joe and the juice as well rob recently oh, and, okay. <laughs> and and i'm about to just release a podcast episode just reading that article so i'll oh, make okay. sure in the show notes but i love all of yeah. the things that you commented on um it's incredibly impressive some of the things i noticed about their app for example is you can actually digitally tip the staff mm. which is i think a very thoughtful way to okay. drive employee mm. loyalty and um, you're right, it is a Danish company. It's extraordinarily successful. Um, I think they have over 300 stores now. But you're mm. right, I think they've just built that competitive, compelling uh, gamification process. Mm. But also, I suppose, just as a, as a closing point, what they do in terms of recruiting staff is they host auditions. 
So it's mm. not like filling in a form for most coffee shops. You actually have to be almost as charismatic as, you know, a performing bartender at a leading mm. nightclub. Okay. Yeah. So it's an extraordinary brand. But I think it's a great way to, to end this conversation again from, you know, for somebody like you. Um, and I'd love if you did write an article on them so we can trade mm. some. I might, um, I, I'm tempted to. I, I keep thinking it's too off topic for my readership, but no, I, I'm I, still tempted. I, 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 kept, I kept the screenshots just in case. There you phone. go. You have creative license, Rob. You are the founder and the editor. Yeah. So um, you can literally write about what you uh, what you like. So true. listen, um, it's been a fascinating conversation, Rob, from my side. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we go? No, no, it's been great to talk to you, Paula. It's good to um, explore topics I can't normally explore in my day-to-day -day writing, to be honest. So wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so listen, Rob Burgess, editor and founder of Head for Points, the UK's biggest frequent flyer and business travel website. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 170 executives in 20 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com and loyaltyacademy.org. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews and thanks again for supporting the show.